Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, week or so before Rosh Hashanah. I uh, understand that this week, as we said in Shul, is the morale of Prague. I can't remember if I spoke about it or not, maybe when I was in uh, Prague, but I don't think I did a dedicated podcast, which I'll undertake to do right now, even though, as with all these famous figures that I'm coming across, I can only do a little bit. You know as well as I do, the morale is like a whole Sefer Torah by itself. It's a gigantic field, and his writings are voluminous, and, you know, uh, like I say, I, I can't get into that. But I don't believe most people have an idea of the historical morale. Not the story about the golem, which is a legend. I'm talking about the real the real morale. So I'll just try in the usual time frame to give a... Who was who the man? Who is this person? Who is this guy? Uh, so first of all, the morale is is, is a Ashkenazi rabbi who lived in, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, Central Europe in the 1500s. Uh, it's not clear on the date, but my best guess, best as I can see, he lived to be about 90, 1520 to 1610, uh, 89, 90, something like that, which is a long life. In those days, that's a long life, even today. I mean, in the 1500s, people usually didn't live that long. And in the case of the Maraldis, it's very significant because most of his books he published in his 80s. So just consider, for example, the fact that Rashi, and the Rambam died in their 60s. Suppose they would have made it to their 90s, right? Or their 80s. Have an extra 20 years, be a lot more books, I bet you from Rashi and from Rambam, and many other rabbis like that. So longevity sometimes makes a difference if you have your mind, and especially if you use those last years to publish your books that you're working on a long time. Now, in the case of the Maral, um, so he's born... Uh, now, by the way, don't trust what you read. There's a lot of bubba mices and legends and factual errors out there tomorrow. He's one of those figures. And I'm not only talking about the golem. I'm talking about a lot of other things in addition to the golem stories. There's just a lot of misstatements of fact out there. Because one says in the Chavra Chavra Islam, they just repeat it. So I'm going to do the best I can in the next few minutes to give my best take. That's all you ever get with me is my best opinion or best take on the uh, basic facts. So I would say tomorrow was born in 1520 in Poland. Uh, from Posen, which is in the western part of Poland, the part near Germany. Uh, if he's born in 1520, early 1500s, that means his family is part of that wave that constituted Polish Jewry, meaning Ashkenazi Jews from Ashkenaz, from Germany, who were kicked out of Germany over the course of a couple hundred years, many of whom just traveled east and went to the next country over, which was Poland, which I've spoken about many times. And uh, the morale, therefore, lives in the golden age of Poland, of Jewish Poland, in the 15 and early 1600s. But he usually wasn't there in Posen. Now, uh, he came from a family that was rich and learned. His father was a Chasharov. Everybody knows he has three brothers who were Chasharov on him. This was what you would have, you know, today would call an intellectual family. It reminds me a little bit like Rabbeinu Tom, his brother of, uh, you know, uh, who was the Rajbam and all that sort of thing. 
Sometimes you have these families of several siblings that are, of course, the Maral would be the most famous of them, Yehudalayim. And uh, here's the interesting part. As far as we know, uh, he didn't go to yeshiva. Now, I could be wrong. He lived in Poland, and chances are he went to learn this yeshiva. But as far as we can tell, not. He probably learned with his father, that sort of thing. If that's true, that he didn't learn in yeshiva, that would explain a lot about him, because he certainly is off the beaten track. The thing that makes the Maral interesting is he ain't yeshivish exactly. And uh, you know, he, has, he, mar- he marched his own drummer, and he was something of a nonconformist. And this is something very interesting about him. So here's somebody that's uh, learning, you know, as I say, in the way I just described, probably in his own. Uh, as we'll see later on, the Maral didn't learn generally yeshiva style, which is called pilpul in those days, which is extreme pilpul to halukim in the 1500s. And I've described in other occasions, I just don't have the patience to go through now. You say a whole big pilpul over here, then you say another one over then you say another one, another one there. And after you said four or five, this is like a six-hour shear. Then you tie them all together in one grand solution that answers all the uh, kashas. Uh, he, he didn't like that. So here's somebody learned on his own. If I intuit this correctly, then he started with the basics, you know, like he recommends others. If he learned on his own, then he, and he was systematic, you can tell by his nature he was systematic, probably went through Mishnayas, and after he went through Mishnayas, went through Shas, and after he finished Babli, then he went through Shalmi, and then he systematically went through Midrashim, you know, that whole way of learning. Now, um, as I said, his family was not poor, and he married a rich girl. There are many stories about him, and I myself wrote one of these stories years ago in Karen's Magazine, uh, according to which, by the time he was married, he was 32, and the wife was 29, which is extremely unusual in those days. But as I make my calculations now, I don't think that story is true. I think if he's born in 1520... Uh, which I believe is the case, and he got married in 1544. He was 24 years old when he got married. It's not that old. And he had seven kids, six girls and a boy. And um, here he is learning away. So years matter. Dates matter in history. So he's born in 1520 uh, in Posen. He marries a rich girl from Prague. Hear what I just said, from Prague. The morale will not get to Prague until he's like in his 50s. So the first half of his life, he had nothing to do with Prague. That's like an important part of his story. So here's a guy, maybe 15, 20. So imagine he's learning in his home and posing these kind of places in Poland and learning up a storm. Obviously, he's a genius and all that. And um, his brother got a stellar in Nicholsburg in Moravia, which is a place I was at back in July with my group. Uh, now they call it Mikolov. It's a very pretty, picturesque place up in the mountains. And that was the headquarters of the chief rabbi of the province of Moravia. And his brother was a dying there, and I imagine the brother stuck him in. The morale, at the age of 33, therefore, um, became the chief rabbi of Nicholsburg, and therefore the chief rabbi of the whole uh, province of, of Moravia. That's very interesting. 33 is a very young age to be a chief rabbi somewhere, and especially a guy who's not the typical yeshivish type. He gave different type of shiur, uh, not the lumdus and the pilpul type. Of course, he did that, but not in the regular uh, yeshiva style. One very interesting thing about the morale is Here's a guy that was a gigantic gon, and Kapaskan Shah is obviously a new Shah's cold back and forth, obviously. He doesn't write anything. Listen to what I'm telling you. He doesn't really write anything in Lumdus. Uh, all his books are Ashkafa, aren't they? Uh, you know, uh, religious philosophy, perhaps. Uh, the morale style is dealing with other issues than halacha. Now, we have a couple of chubas that survived for him. I happen to know this 
being in the rabbi business with agunas, and they're, they're very famous. So, in other words, there's no question you got to learn. But you don't see him publishing a set of Shavos and Shubas, even though he lived to be 90. You don't see him publishing Kedushim. I think in the last couple of years in Israel, scholars have found old manuscripts that he never published on Gemara's and all that. But the classic morale isn't somebody who is, 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 is putting together works on Talmudic commentary and halachic commentary, which is what most guys like him in the 1500s and 1600s did. If you're a Chashav Rav, you pass a commentary on Shulchan Aruch, you publish, I mean, you publish or on, on Chas, or, you know, that sort of thing. So he's, uh, like I say, always a little bit different. He was a chief rabbi there in Nicholsburg, which means you were the highest religious authority in the province, in, in uh, Moravia, where he was, Nicholsburg is the capital, but they had 50 or 60 different communities, quite small. And uh, there was very centrally organized. So the chief rabbi decides every year what mesechta all the yeshivas are learning. They're, like each town had a little yeshiva. And they decide, you know, uh, the style of learning. It's, it's a very centralized and very interesting kind of uh, situation. The chief rabbi presides over making takanas. And the morale is famous in Nicholsburg for all these different types of takanas. Most of them have to do with trying to keep the wedding in Lakewood, as they say today. Keep the cost down on luxury things. This is a Jewish problem we always have, which is you spend too much on the wedding, spend too much on the bar mitzvah, spend too much on the clothing. And they always used to po- try to pass sumptuary laws, which means that the communities would make a takana. Can't spend more than more than this on a bar mitzvah. Can't spend more than this on a bris. You know, that sort of thing. And the other thing he's famous for was waging a 20-year war against drinking regular wine because uh, the Jews in Moravia didn't keep stamienum. I mean, rabbis and all that sort of thing, they ju- it just dropped. And he, being a real for me, Posing, so he uh, said, "No, you have to keep the rules of Stamiyim. You have to only buy kosher wine, and uh, you, you know, guys not allowed to touch it and all that." And he uh, really put up a big fight about all this. Um, he made famous takanas there about Chaver Kadisha. No, he was that what we would call today an activist rabbi. At the age of fifty-three, that was twenty years after he was a chief rabbi in, in Nicholsburg, he moves to Prague. So Morale of Prague didn't live in Prague until he was like in his fifties. And then, in a very, very interesting uh, context, best as I can tell, and the context was as follows. In Prague, they had these uh, millionaires. And uh, one of the millionaires, uh, maybe even the most famous of them, was his um, contemporary, whose name was uh, Mordechai Meisels, who was an extremely rich guy and had no kids. Uh, Him and his wife. And he was married twice. And he... Um, therefore, was a big philanthropist, and I mean, he built the city hall and he paved the streets of the ghetto with uh, cobblestones, which was a luxury. That I mean, he built a mikvah, and he built synagogues. I mean, the guy was unusually uh, philanthropic, shall we say? Because he had make kids, and um, one of the things he did was to develop a certain little neighborhood within the uh, Jewish area of Prague, Yosefov, and he built there. Like a uh, base matters, you might say. Uh, I don't want to use the word community kolel. That's what they, they call it in Baltimore. But something along those lines. And uh, he invited, it seems, the chief rabbi of Nicholsburg to be the, the, the rosh of this klois, uh, of this uh, semi-yeshiva, semi-shul situation. Today, this is called the Klaus Synagogue. And if you go to Prague, you can go there. We visited it. It's on that site, but it, it later became a shul, and it was not, and it was burned down, it was rebuilt, and it doesn't look today anything at all like it did in the time of the morale, in which case it would have been a, a, like a big base medrash. 
And there must have been some connection between this millionaire on the one hand and this rabbi from out of town, from Nicholsburg, on the other, because the guy bankrolled him, it seems. Um, now, we don't have enough information. Uh, and the morale, therefore, could run his own base matters and do whatever the heck he wanted because uh, the money's coming in. It is, uh, And here you see the morale doing things, like I said before, which are a little unusual. For example, this happened in the 1570s, as I said before, in the 1570s. Uh, he's born in 1520, so he comes to Prague in 1573, just to give you a basic framework over here. And uh, I'm sure he was, must have been a member of the base in Prague, but he wasn't the rov there at all, although he wanted the job. One thing we know he did was he started giving a Chumash Rashi a shear, which uh, rabbis didn't do so much in those days. If you're a real rabbi, you do Gemara, Shas, and Poskim, Tosas, Pilpul, that sort of business. Alternatively, Halacha, who does Chumash and Rashi? That's for, for, for babies, for dummies. That, my friends, is the Gur Aryeh. If this one of his famous works on Rashi, it's a big super commentary. Maybe you've seen it. Um, if you've ever seen a book on Chumash Rashi, they often quote from it. Uh, I was, uh, my brother-in-law, Jeff Silver, was nice enough to bring me a setback. Rafi Adler got it now with Manuka and everything the way I like it, which came out a year or two ago, the whole um, Gura Aryeh Rashi. And it's pretty doggone lumpish. Uh, you know, it's not just a, a, a simple commentary. It's, you know, asking questions, giving to roots him and all that sort of thing. And it's more than simply explaining the words of Rashi on the Chumash. Uh, so it's a whole little world by itself. And that can only mean that either he had started to do this early when he was in Nicholsburg and now brought it to print, or this is something he did in his new yeshiva in Prague to, to go to show you I'm not just regular yeshivish. Uh, I mentioned last week about the Tosas Yontem being his student, that the morale is going to push making Hever Mishnayis. You see also the morale is going to push making Hever Chumash and Rashi. Uh, and when I say make Hever Chumash and Rashi, learn Rashi Be'in. There are many places, Chassinim especially, that the, during the week, they'll have a, a, a class that meets together to learn Chumash Rashi, but be in. And uh, it can be done, and the Maral is a classic example. As I'm sure some of you listening will know, recently the, uh, what is it, Mechon Yushalayim, or somebody, Rabbi Hartman, put out this uh, big set of the, uh, yeah, I think it's him, with all the super footnotes, if you're really, really, really into, if you're a Maral freak and you're really into the, the Gurari. But, you know, that's great. So that's one thing. So now he's in Prague in his fifties. Now, now the story gets kind of, kind of, kind of weird. At the age of sixty-three, in 1583, 10 years after he came to Prague, the uh, rabbi died, and so he made himself a candidate to be the rabbi of Prague at the age of sixty-three. That's not so uh, young, okay? And he lost the election. Uh, it's well known that he lost the election because at his tryout uh, sermon, as we could call it, which is published you know, his uh, Jewish Allah Torah or whatever, he couldn't keep his mouth shut, and he tore into all the Balabatim, especially the richy riches. Uh, you know, the learning stinks, the yeshivas here are no good because they're onto the pilpul and the lumdus, and the kids don't know the basics, so therefore the, 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 the pilpul is based on nothing. It's, it's often wrong. He is a very famous in history as a critic of the yeshiva-style learning of that time, and instead the morale is associated with the idea of systematic First goes to Tanakh, then to Mishnahis, then to Gemara, you know, that, that way. Uh, and he's always looking for systematic, well-grounded curriculums and things of this nature. And let's put it this way. 
By attacking the style of learning, he alienated the Frumis. And by attacking the Richie Rich, he alienated the rich. So he lost the election. Uh, the guy who won the election was a brother-in-law of his, married to his wife's sister, who was much more yeshivish, Ritzik Chayas, I think his name was, and uh, more into Pilpul. So he lost the election at 63. Um, obviously, he was really angry about this, and he left town. Uh, he returned back to his hometown in Posen, where he hadn't been for decades. And for four years, he's uh, living in Posen. Maybe he was the rabbi there, I can't remember. He certainly could be darn sure he had a yeshiva there or something, because a person like this doesn't just sit there. But all I can tell you is that um, he's there in Posen for four years. So that means from the age of 63 to 67. And then, at the age of 67, he comes back to Prague. What does he do back in Prague? Uh, he starts with the uh, Machlekes again. He starts cussing out the richie riches. He says that they're not, he makes speeches, they're not, support, they're not giving their fair share of charity, they're not supporting the poor properly, they're living too high and mighty, and all the rest of it. So he formed, because Prague was not the place to do this, he formed bitter enemies. Uh, they couldn't take this in a good spirit, you understand? He formed bitter enemies. And throughout the writings of the morale, if you know where to look, here and there, every once in a while he'll talk about corrupt Parnosim and leaders who are no darn good and they represent the Homer and not the Tzura. And basically, Jewish people are great, the Jews themselves are uh, stink. And uh, the result is that he lived in a very uh, controversial environment uh, for the next four years in his late 60s, uh, which is kind of interesting. And then... Uh, at the age of 60, so I'll say it again. He moved to, he left Prague at the age of 63. He stayed out of Prague for four years. He came back to Prague in 60, at the age of 67. He lived there uh, for the next bunch of years. Uh, so here's a guy in his late 60s and early 70s, just as cantankerous before, calling it like he sees it, making enemies right and left. On the other hand, he's obviously assembling a group of followers. So there's no question that he was a polarizing type. Either you became a big chassid of his, or a Talmud of his, like the Tosas Yontav type, or whatever, or you became the opposite, and you hate him. I'll repeat again. You hate him. And um, this is already, if he's in a, if he's 70, so let's put it this way, he's born in 1520, and now he's back in Prague in 1590. When he's 72 years old, so he already has a, a, a big reputation. He may not be the official rov, but it's pretty clear if you're living in Prague in the 1500s, who is the biggest Tamachacham in town? Uh, you know, let, let's put it that way. If you've got the Maral living there, uh, who's the biggest Tamachacham in town? Uh, he has a Europe-wide reputation. Uh, he, this is something very fascinating. Prague, where he's living in the 1500s, especially in his era, in the uh, second half of the 1500s, the late 1500s, that was the golden age of Prague. Uh, maybe I mentioned this last week, I don't remember, about the Tosis Yantu. But that's when Prague was the headquarters of European culture. That's when the Holy Roman Emperor li didn't live in Vienna, but lived in Prague. And that Emperor, Rudolf II, was interested in science and art and all this kind of business. If you go to Prague, you can see the results of it. they are magnificent buildings and fancy schmancy and very uh, extremely culture, very thick culture. And remember, uh, Prague was not bombed in World War II, so you, look, you know what it looks like even before the war. And uh, music and, oh, you name it. And... Prague was the headquarters of science, particularly a science that would interest a rabbi. Which science would interest a rabbi? Astronomy. He's there at the time of, who was it, Kepler and, uh, you know, um, Copernicus and all these guys. Uh, Prague is a major, Tycho Brahe, there's a, a major area 
of astronomical development because the emperor was interested in this stuff. So he patronized it. Now you have to understand, from the European emperor point of view, they confuse astrology and astronomy. They figure if you know the stars better, you'll be able to do astrology better. But it doesn't matter. Meanwhile, great progress was made in this science, and the morale writes about this. Uh, he's, he's very interested in what you and I would call today hard science. What he doesn't like is the liberal arts. When you have philosophy, and philosophy starts to tell you what God is like, that would be very offensive to somebody like the morale. Because how does a philosopher know what God is like? They don't know anything. They speculate. And how can a human possibly know what God is? By definition, God is beyond the comprehension because he created all the philosophical categories. So the words themselves are created. Consequently, they can't comprehend the, t- the totality of God. You know, he's that type. And, uh, but hard sciences, math, science, uh, astronomy, geometry, that sort of thing, that he sucks up, that he loves, you see? So he wasn't your typical rabbi. Because the typical rabbi in the 1500s isn't Gemara, Rashi, Tosis, and that sort of thing, and extreme cultural insularity. Now, knowing secular sciences does not necessarily make you culturally open. It can reinforce, possibly, your cultural insularity, and it certainly did in the case of the morale. He just is able to incorporate his wider knowledge into his defenses of cultural insularity. I hope you understand what I just said. And uh, in this context... What is very famous is in 1592. So that means when he's 72 years old, he is uh, he's called in for an, uh, a conference with the uh, with the what do you call it, the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II, who was an interesting guy, definitely a weirdo, and by all reports, you know, they had a friendly conversation. Nobody knows what they talked about. Most likely, he probably asked him shalos about Kabbalah about, um, what do you call it, um, astronomy, astrology, what do the Jews say about this? That's what I assume. Uh, even though a lot of people speculate, this is really the source of the of the golem legends, all the rest of it. You say, oh, Rudolf called him in, he must ask him about magic, he must talk about golems, and this and that and the other. Uh, not really. It, it could be that the morale, and we don't have a lot of information about this, acquired a European-wide rep- reputation relative to other rabbis, because he was involved in some debates about the blood libel, and uh, he defended the Jewish position, obviously, and uh, I imagine he did a good job of it, or something like that, maybe yes, maybe no. The Maral does complain in his writings about people who are bullies, and they try to, uh, he's really talking about the Catholic Church, where they try to say debates with the Jews, but they don't let the Jews really defend themselves. And so he says, what kind of a victory is it if you shut me up? So it's uh, clear that you know he lived in that kind of a tough environment, so Prague was a funny place, part liberal, part anti-liberal. Um, all we know is that it's unusual for a Rav, and that's all he was, uh, to, be, to want to talk, that the emperor wants to talk to you, especially in that extremely anti-Semitic period. Now, I would have ordinarily thought that if the community saw that here's somebody who's so chasha, they didn't buy the Goyim, they're interested in him, that's the guy you want for a Rav. That's typically what would happen in Jewish history. If you had a rabbi that the king or the emperor is uh, giving respect. Oh, that will redound to the Jewish community. You think they want him? He was so disliked that even with that, <laughs> they they wouldn't take him in. And uh, in his seventies, he still didn't get the job that he coveted. At the age of seventy-seven, in fifteen ninety-seven, so he's almost eighty, he finally got elected chief rabbi of Prague. Who knows what kind of politics happened over there? So he was uh, an old man when he finally got the job after two or three tryouts. I imagine this time he didn't make a speech cussing anybody out. Maybe he did. You never know with him. And uh, now 
That means in his old age, when his health started failing him, that is when the morale became the morale of Prague, so to speak, the, the rov of, uh, of the community. Uh, you go today, I was there two months ago in the Altnoy Shoal, uh, where the morale was davening. He davened in the other shoals as well. And you can see on the wall these tachonas uh, that he made, uh, that they say anyway, it's a, a nice uh, calligraphy to that the morale made when he was the chief rabbi of Prague. Most of which have to do, if I remember correctly, with aliyah questions. Who gets an aliyah? Who doesn't get an aliyah? You know, fights can break out in school with these stupid things, correct? How can you give this guy shlishi? And I had mafter as my bar mitzvah parsha, as my grandfather's yard side, all that kind of junk. And as they say before, if you're a loose goose, so you don't, uh, you know, you don't freak over it. Like your Charles Saunter used to say, my late father would get more satisfaction in heaven by giving the other guy the aliyah. But a lot of people aren't like that, you know. And I just remember one off the top of my head, and it says, under no circumstances can a bachelor get an aliyah. So that must have been some hot item in the Prague community in his time. Uh, whatever the case is, here's somebody who only became the Rav at the age of 77, and he had to retire. I remember um, right away, like a year or two later, I mean, that that's old. And even though today we have you know modern medicine and all the rest, it's still old. And I'm only saying that to be a Rav is not an honorific position. Pimdi Rav, he had the Paschal Shalas, he had to preside over the basin, he um, had to uh, consider with this well. He had to run a yeshiva, uh, which is a taxing thing, right? And uh, he had to, uh, you know, handle the takonas, and it's 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 a it's a tough job. And I remember that when he became the Rav, finally, age of seventy-seven. So, uh, yeah, two years later, so when he's 79 years old, he had to retire from position of Rosh Hashiva, which means the Rav can't give a shir every day anymore like he used to. That's totally understandable if you're almost 80 years old. And uh, he's just concentrating on being the rabbi, which means also the Av Bezin, the Ronda Bezin ceremonies. Here today, you've got special guys that are Dayanim, that's all they do. And that's a, that's a full-time job also in a big city. You have other people who are Rashibas and Magad Shears. Imagine a guy who has both positions. Every day you got to give a shear. Plus, in addition to that, you have to be a dying in a basin. That's very taxing, especially if somebody's almost 80 years old. So, it's just telling this is who tomorrow was. Now comes the interesting part. In this old age, in his uh, late 70s and 80s, that's when he publishes most of his books. That's the interesting part, okay? That's when he published most of his books. Uh, between the age of 78 and 80 something or other. Uh, you know, he came out to Be'er Agola, and the Netzach Yisrael, and the Archarash, and the Tferes Yisrael, and all these books that are made all very famous. It's kind of interesting. Take, for example, the Be'er Agola, which is an attack on uh, Azari de Rossi, who historicized many of the Talmudic Agadatas. I think I've spoken about this in the past. I don't know, it, it'll take me too long to go into. But Azari de Rossi will simply say, a lot of these Agadatas, either the rabbis got it wrong, or their historical information was wrong, or is this very superficial? And to the, the style of the morale is nothing in the Ghazal at all is superficial. You're superficial, you idiot. And everything is super deep. And even things that sound weird, they may not be literal, but they are not dumb. They have a deep meaning. I'll say it again. They may not be literal, but they have a deep meaning. I think I mentioned to you the classic example that I always think of is the story of the bug that went up the nose of Titus. That's in the Gomorrah and Gittin. And, you know, Zari de Rossi, who was the uh, rabbi in Italy, who was tried to be early historian, 1500s Renaissance style, he says, we looked up all the records, a lot of the Roman stuff was around the time of Titus, 
and he died from this, that, and the other. He didn't die from a bug in the nose, which turned into a, a bird, which pecked, which tore away his brain. That's the story in the Gemara. And therefore, it must be a Baba Misa, or if it's not a Baba Misa, it's some kind of, uh, that's too strong a word. It's a Misa, but it was said by the rabbis as sort of a kosher, uh, uh, a moral tale. Oh my goodness, the moral rips them to beds. Who do you think you are? You have an idea of the Chazal are. It's not a Baba Misa. But by the time you read the moral's interpretation, the, 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 the bug that went up the nose and turned into a bird that ripped apart the brain, all the rest of it, was a brain tumor, as we would call today. So in other words, according to him, it also wasn't a, a bug. I say again, it's not a literal, but on the other hand, it doesn't mean that it's a fantasy, that it's a silly. It's always something very deep. That's the basic style of the moral. There's a lot more than that, but if I get into that, I'll spend another 20 minutes. So here's somebody, as I say before, who, who was fortunate enough to live into his 80s when he published most of his form. Now, the Gura Ayyan Rashi published back when he was in his 50s. Uh, and maybe another book or two along the way. But the majority of what we call today the Kissing Maral, and anybody has any idea what I'm talking about, knows that's a whole shelf. Okay? That's a whole shelf. You fill a whole shelf with just with his books. Uh, and he, of course, introduced, as we, and, and when he was 84, 1604, so he, he basically retired from Chief Rabbi Prague. Uh, they brought in, uh, the way they did it was, uh, they brought in an assistant rabbi, and that guy was the, was the real, you know, did all the jobs. Who was the assistant rabbi, by the way? Uh, Kleoker. So that's when we say Kleoker was a Talmud of morale. I don't know if he was a Talmud, is he might have been. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago I did the Kleoker. Uh, it seems he learned under him a little bit, but he was his uh, successor. So in other words, between the time the Maral hit 84 and the time he died at the age of 90 or so, the Kli- he was uh, in retirement. I don't know what his health was like. And, uh, you know, physical and mental. The job of giving a shear every day and running the basin was done by the Kliyaka, by Sh- uh, Shlomo Fraim Lunchitz, who was, uh, his, 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 in this way, his successor and all that. So they got along, but... Uh, uh, but then, you know, that was this, the story over there. So here's somebody who obviously had, uh, as they say before, was lost several times the rabbinate, and uh, the Balabatim already. It could be, I, I, I remember reading in a German biography once that they, like, forced it on him when he was 84. They said, well, you got to get an assistant, and he should be the real rabbi. Uh, and, and the guy who wrote the book, which was an excellent book, I haven't seen it in many years in German, uh, Gutmann Klemperer, was a bohemian rabbi in the 19th century. He wrote these very sharp but very uh, accurate uh, biographies of some bohemian uh, rabbis, including the Maral. And he said there was a lot of bitter faction going on in his time because that's what Prague was. It was that kind of city always divided up into into groups that are tearing each other a bit, not over principle, but over a Jewish shtick. Uh, I know that the community, uh, his enemies got the, uh, the revenge on him because the Maral wanted when he gets old, that his assistant and therefore his successor should be his son. The Moral had a son, Betzalo, you know, because father was Betzalo, and he wanted Betzalo to follow him. Well, he was voted out. Notice he didn't get the job. Why didn't he vote the job? Bitter enemies in the Moral. So he lived a, uh, a life among Jews. What can I tell you, you know? Among Jews. And it's interesting, the writings of the Moral are full of the idea they're good Jews, they're bad Jews. Claudius Roll itself is, a, is, is unbelievable. It's a tzura, as he calls it. But the individual Jews could be a homer. They're not so good because you have, uh, you have bad Jews out there. Nobody experienced it. No experience like he did. The books of the morale, the swarm of the morale, uh, 
very interesting. Uh, I've always been out there, of course, since the uh, early, late 15, early 1600s. I would say that they didn't get much traction, as far as I can see, until the 1700s, and especially the 1800s. I would say, in my opinion, that the ones who put the morale on the map is the Hasidim. Some of the Hasidic rabbis, like uh, Valtanya was a grandson of his, a great-grandson, whatever, and some of these other rabbis are all related to him, you know. And uh, you can totally understand, Hasidus is looking for these kinds of spiritualistic ideas that have their sort of content that they're interested in. And the morale is a giant, and he fills his whole world full of ideas that the Hasidim were able afterwards to uh, uh, appropriate from and, and build systems around. Uh, in the 20th century, it hit the Litvisha world. So, uh, yeah, starting with Rav Cook and people like that, Rav Hutner, you know, this, this, uh, today, in the last 50, 60, 70 years, more, uh, the morale is like really hot in the yeshiva world for those that are interested in that kind of religious philosophy. Today, if somebody today is real from in the yeshiva world or Hasidic, uh, they're not into the Rambam with the Marnavuchim. That ain't turning them on. I don't even think they're much into the, you know, most of the medieval uh, uh, philosophy books. The Yekuzri, uh, the Sadigon, the Amunis Vadeos. We're not living in such an era. So if they're interested in ideas, they go into the morale. I would say today in the uh, yeshiva world, as best as I can tell, you're looking at the the people who are spending a lot of time in morale and in the Ramchal. Uh, between these two, you have a whole huge world of ideas, somewhat Kabbalistic, somewhat not Kabbalistic. Um, as I said before, to get into the morale's ideas, that's a separate uh, podcast. You know, that, that take a half hour just soon. So, so I'll simply uh, make the following uh, point uh, historically, and that is, for some reason, the morale must have had a big reputation, even among the Goyim. Uh, nobody knows why. Uh, as I said, the emperor wanted to speak to him and all this sort of thing. He seems to have debated with the Jesuits. And as a result, he became something of a folk memory of the Czech people. And uh, and for some reason, they appropriated the morale, who was not really Czech, uh, into their national lore. And not you need to know this, but the Czechs went through a period when they had their culture and they were suppressed by the Austrian, the Germans. For a couple hundred years, they weren't supposed to be Czech and things like that. And then, little by little, they had a cultural revival and followed by eventually getting their own national independence after the First World War. So in the Czech culture, they make room for Jews to some degree. And the morale to them became a big figure. They are the ones, these Goyim, are the ones that pushed the idea of of the Golem. I kid you not. And they embellished it and all the rest of it. And... The, the, the best or worst example I'm talking about is you go to Prague downtown, it's a beautiful, and they have all these statues and big uh, uh, buildings and churches and squares and all that kind of stuff. You go to the city hall, I think it is, and there's a giant statue, a Gaisha statue on the morale, as they imagine. It was put, it was made by a guy in 1917. Uh, and you see a big rabbi with a long beard and all the rest of it. And next to him, was a, hanging on to him is a naked girl. I kid you not. Now only the Czechs could come up with that. The West Shot Naked Girl, he's supposed to have been tempted by the Apes of Horror in the disguise of a female, and he didn't give in. Where'd you get that from? It's a Czech fairy tale. They made up the robots. They made up a lot of these uh, Brothers Grimm-type fairy tales. All the Czechs have a very vivid imagination, and they incorporated the morale stuff into their imagination. The Jews picked it up. Uh, why are the Jews so dumb to pick it up? 
that's a kasha. But nevertheless, they pick it up. And today, the morale is very big for the golem. And, and other types of stories, it's well-known, certain rabbinical phonies wrote fake uh, stories about him, about morale and all. He became a, a figure of legend where uh, you don't usually find, you know, let's put it this way, ain't too many legendary books about the marshals, <laughs> you know. It doesn't work that way. But the morale, yes. Um, partially because he was a different type of rabbi. Partially because he definitely spoke about spooky wooky things, but in not in a mystical kind of way, in a in a funny kind of semi philosophical way. It's not really philosophy in the classic sense. It's morale. Uh, but you know, some of the greatest minds have been profoundly inspired by it. And uh, I guess the thing is, you know, he has an all the yum tovim. So now the sukkahs and the other holidays are coming up. Roshanim Kippur, if you look in the in, in the writings of morale, you can find a lot of ideas. I think they're now a lot on the internet, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the morale of the vivid imagination uh, will never get rid of. You'll never convince anybody the morale did not make a golem, you understand? And uh, to them, that'll be the ichor. If you ask somebody, have you learned the Gevur Hashem? You know, have you learned the Nesir Yisrael? The answer will be no. Can you tell me about the morale and the golem? The answer will be yes. We live in such a world. So... Uh, just know that this statue exists. Do not go online and try to see a picture of the statue because uh, that would not even be proper. But uh, nevertheless, the morale uh, d- departs from us uh, with this very powerful set of, of ideas that he put together in all of his writings. To write, go through the kissing morale is a big enterprise. And uh, a lot of people have Siddharam and classes now online in many synagogues, in yeshivas, or different aspects of the writing of the morale which is not something that is true of the writings of many of the rabbinical thinkers of the 15 and 1600s, and therefore emerges one of the seminal uh, figures in Jewish thought and in Jewish history. I've already gone too late, so with that, I'll close. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com